0: There's this wonderful illusion that when you run a startup, it's very glamorous. I think metaphorically speaking, you're basically going around getting kicked in the teeth repeatedly. (laughs) And I think you just have to have that mentality, right? There's a door in front of you, you have to run through it. Look, I've kissed a lot of frogs.
1: Successes in the Mind is proud to have partnered with and be supported by the Great British Entrepreneur Awards and Community, a programme that recognises, celebrates, supports, encourages and champions entrepreneurs in Great Britain. Hello and welcome to Success Is In The Mind. I'm Oliver Bruce and if you're new to the show, we'll be discussing with current owner entrepreneurs about their failures, mistakes, passion and persistence in the face of business adversity. Not all entrepreneurs, however, have completed their vision just yet. Some are just starting out and I want to give you a sense of business reality in a world full of idealism. So what does it take to become successful, to grow a brand or to start a business? Join me to hear from those that are currently doing just that. As always, you can reach the team and I via the website bizpodcast.co.uk, that is with a Z, or tweet me at Bruce underscore biz. With the growth of online shopping and the addiction of getting rid of the old to buy in the new, my guest today James Hartford Tyre has recently completed an investment round to the tune of £4.6 million, believed to be one of the largest investments ever raised within the UK fashion resale business. Kidoni, a luxury goods and fashion reseller, was founded by James after a life in the city. James has recently, however, been named Forbes 30 Under 30. But I asked the question, why give up a life of banking and a hefty paycheck to shift second-hand handbags? Ladies and gentlemen, James Hartford Tyre. James, thanks very much for joining me on the podcast. You've done a lot of interviews online about the sort of fluffy stuff, you know, going to cafes in Chelsea and all that, all that la da nonsense. This podcast is slightly different in as much as we're not gonna be talking about any of that. I wanna know the real, the real James. But back in 2015, you graduated from the New Entrepreneurs Foundation. You then founded Codoni, which essentially is a, a sort of posh eBay um, from what I can deduce. Do you wanna to talk to me about sort of the innovation and how you came up with that idea?
0: Sure. Uh, well, firstly, thank you for, for having me on. I think, yeah, going back to the uh, gosh, the the initial inspiration. I mean, I started reselling things from my parents' garage when I was 12, 13 years old. Um, and I think you rightly mentioned there's a lot of fluff on the uh, on the internet about lovely cafes and things. And I think people seem to suggest that I had this wonderful idea, innovative idea that was going to change the world. I'll tell you what the vision was. When you're 12 years old, you're thinking about buying your next pair of football boots uh, and going to the cinema. So uh, that, that was the glitz and the glamour behind uh, behind that part of uh, the story. And I, I think I literally just found whatever I could in the garage and around the house to, to, to sell. There was no magic to it. Uh, it was just the fact that quite clearly busy people have better things to do with their time than to sit on platforms like eBay,
1: et <laughs> I hate eBay. Do you know, when I was younger, I bought a, a PSP, what I thought was a PSP for like AC Quiz, and actually it was a photo of a PSP. So I've not really navigated it very well, but... Uh...
0: That classic scam, I've had, uh, I've, I've seen plenty of those in and out of Kidoni. I've, I've had a watermelon in a box. Oh, really? I've had a pair of underwear. Yeah, we've had a pair of underwear, which came back, used underwear. <laughs> oh,
1: Depending on where you're from, that might be worth something. But... <laughs> and when, but when you were starting it, though, what were you tripping over? What was the, the issue at the time?
0: Uh, everything actually (laughs) pretty much tripping over everything I think look the the, the honest answer is where it went wrong is building a service for myself and not building a service for our customers which I'm sorry to say almost sounds like a textbook answer but it's genuinely true the reason why we had to pivot three times was because I kept persisting on slightly diluted forms of the same product where the same service where we needed to to go and spend more times with customers to understand what they actually wanted. So where stuff goes wrong is, well, you're not in front of enough of them or not hearing from enough of them to actually understand what they want. So everything feels wrong because it works for you and it's lovely, but it doesn't necessarily work for, for, for them.
1: So what were the three pivots then that you did? The
0: first version of this product was actually nothing to do with what we're doing now. It was more a case of I got frustrated with the traditional auction model. I liked the idea of of a reverse auction where prices went down and we started focusing on experiences. You know, people would basically, it would be first come first serve on who was willing to pull the trigger first on buying experience while the price drops. I basically just found I was quite dissatisfied when using voucher and Groupon and these kind of sites, which are obviously great for some people, just didn't work for me. I then pivoted that, um, because I was far more accustomed to this idea of, of resale and products. So we then changed it to clothing, jewellery and watches and bags and all those things. And this wasn't high-end, by the way. This was everything. This was like everyday stuff. That got pivoted into one of the worst-named businesses this planet has ever seen called Clutterco. <laughs>
1: um, now, now
0: I, I, know, I know what you're thinking. What happened? Um, I, I, Oliver, I honestly don't know what went wrong. Um, But we called it ClutterCo and it was this idea of we would help you declutter your home and we would basically go halves with you on anything which was resaleable. I knew that there were two ways this business was going to work. One was we had to improve the unit economics um, and we had to be able to scale it. So the way to improve the unit economics was to go into high end products because there is no value in reselling things which are middle and lower end of the market. Once you've gone through the process of acquiring the customer and the cost of that, the processing, et cetera, it doesn't work with this with this operationally intense model. And then we refined it to, so it was called Salesprint, which again is a dreadful name, it sounds like a courier. Um, it became Codoni when we realised that the common theme was luxury fashion. Now, I do not have um, a, an extravagant background in, in fashion. I, I know, I understand the economics of it, but... Look, when you when you, see, when you see a photo of me, I'm very much stressed by my girlfriend and my mother. <laughs> I, I then pivoted into luxury fashion because customers kept saying, we hate this industry. It doesn't work. It's such a complex business. And we were like, oh, actually, I could become a fashionista here. <laughs> I fell in love with the space because I realized there was a great opportunity to actually disrupt it and do something. I go about it in a different way. And fashion is just so unpredictable. And it was a great market to go in and disrupt. And then ever since I'm now supposed to be a fashion which uh you know own it.
1: Own it, yeah. Do go down that catwalk and do you do you, James. <laughs> <laughs> But you've always been an entrepreneur, then. So you have you, sort of always been interested in tech as well and, and developing. And because this is a platform, cadone, isn't it? That's something online that you developed and that you launched. But you know, in 2019, you raised what is it, 1.9 million for that. You've just done another fund for 4.6. How did you kind of go about raising so much money from an idea in the sort of top of your head?
0: Merciless persistence. I think um, there's this wonderful illusion that when you run a startup. And you've raised loads of money. It's very glamorous. I think metaphorically speaking, you're basically going around getting kicked in the teeth repeatedly. I'd love to say there was a, a great strategy for raising funding. I was talking <laughs> to a lot of people. And I think you just have to have that mentality, right? if There's a door in front of you. You have to run through it. Like I've kissed a lot of frogs. We've raised um, just shy of 7 million in total now, which... Um, has been hard work and probably why I have the receding hairline of a 70 year old man.
1: You and me both. Um, you and me yeah.
0: both. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're slightly better off than I am at the moment. It's really, really, really sitting quite badly. I
1: like to call it wisdom patches though, James. And, and it takes a lot of wisdom to raise money, money like that. I mean, did you have a team around you or was it really you just pushing doors down and, and sort of going, look, this is why I'm worth it. This is what I need. And this is my idea.
0: I think it, it's, it's, it's a bit of bit of both. I think as an entrepreneur, I think you have to have that passion, drive and motivation to push ahead and, and do things. But people don't in invest in individuals. They they invest in, in teams of people. And I am one small part of an increasingly large wheel and I think some of the people I work with are some of the most impressive people on the planet I mean far 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 more impressive uh, experienced and talented than I I mean like so one of the people I've I have who who comes out fundraising with me is uh, a guy called Matt Cooper who's who we're very very fortunate to have as our chairman Matt Cooper founded a small business called Capital One which I'm sure you've probably heard of
1: I think they do my credit card actually uh,
0: they do a lot of stuff these days and they uh, <laughs> they they have a huge market cap I mean it's a phenomenal business and having that kind of person backing you certainly adds a lot of credibility because I think like we we just raised just shy of 5 million but we 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 publicly announced 4.6. We, we're topping up a bit more to about 5. And that 5 million, raising that as a consumer business in a, an unprecedented global pandemic is quite unusual and it's been challenging. And I think you have to have people on board with you like Matt Cooper to very much push that along. So no, I, I, I can't take all the credit.
1: James, if we dial back the clock slightly, because you haven't always been in, in, in sort of charge of your own business. You worked in the banking sector, in the city, RBS, you worked for uh, UPS as well. And I suppose with regards to you alluding to contact with Capital One, did those connections within the banking sector help with the contacts you needed to raise such a, a large amount of money to start the business?
0: I think yes and no. Yes, but more in terms of credibility piece. I think when you look at the archetype of investor, i.e. the people who have the money to invest in these kind of projects, many of them have financial services backgrounds uh, or consultancy backgrounds, somewhere in between. And I think having had those institutions on my CV certainly certainly helped. I mean a yes also in the sense of our our first investment you know a small amount of that came in from the guy who was global head of research at ubs a guy i knew there great guy called paul and then um our chief operating officer his boss um invested as well who worked um, as a managing partner at uh, ey so it definitely helps but i think it it helps up until the point
1: i mean could you have done it without those connections though would it have been not as easy i'm not going to use that term but would it have been as as straightforward to get the money
0: i think in terms of actually getting hold of the money yes but i think the credibility of having those institutions on on the cv really does go a long a long way because people can relate to them and obviously they have a certain criteria to get through the front door in the first place which helps i guess perform a little bit of due diligence in its own right for prospective investors but yeah i think it look, it, it it definitely it definitely helps but the, the majority of i think we raised 150,000 in may 2017 of which 130,000 of that was from uh, people who were had no relation to to that that sector so my relationship with matt who's the the founder of capital 1 um had no uh, no relation to the fact that i was um in at RBS or working at UBS.
1: And with regards to the Entrepreneur Foundation, though, I mean, how did that set you up? Because I have to be honest with you, I haven't spoken to anyone who's ever been involved in the Entrepreneurs Foundation. What is it about?
0: Sure. So I think the I mean, look, the idea is that there are lots of young people, I'm um, not quite sure how they define young, they call it young entrepreneurs, people sort of, you know, going into their sort of mid-30s down to sort of 20, 21. The idea is you, you go there for a year You either run your own business, which not many did, I think it was four or five of us um, did, I didn't at the time, Um, and then the rest have to go and basically scrap it out for jobs at startups and high growth companies. um, I was very, very fortunate to talk myself into a a job as a chief operating officer. I I always say this, that the reality is, is when you are 22, 23 years old, there's nothing really that qualifies you for that irrespective of, you know, what you may have done before. And I think you're learning on the job. And I think the New Entrepreneurs Foundation is rather academic in some ways, which is useful. I think it's more about the the connections and the experience and and being pushed to, to go out and actually do it rather than talking about it, which... The classic entrepreneur these days is every every man and his dog. He sits on the sofa unemployed. Everyone's an entrepreneur.
1: Yeah, it does seem to be somewhat of a trend at the, at the moment. It's very trendy. But you, you are you are an academic chap though. Looking back at your school career, A stars, entrepreneur uh, foundation is a, you're saying a more academic program than it is practical i suppose is it for everybody do you think people should go through it
0: it's it's a bit of both uh, i i say it's it's a bit of both because i've, I've had the fortune of doing a couple of them and so i have a good frame of reference the two after that i did were very practical i don't think it's necessary for the academic person i think um One of the things I really, really liked about the New Entrepreneurs Foundation is they focus on getting a broad mix of people in. So it's not just people who've been to the sort of the Oxford and Cambridge's of the world and have worked at you know McKinsey, UBS, Goldman's, whatever it is. Um, There's also people who've had no academic background as such. Perhaps they may have left school at 16 and they've gone on and actually started something. So I think that for me was quite valuable because again, controversial statement coming up. I look, I, I think university is it started off as a buzzword and now everyone does it, which almost values it in a way and I don't think you have to go to university to be a success I don't think you have to be academic to be a success I think it's a mindset and I think the more that I've got out of the academia bubble you actually realize that it's just one facet of running a business and quite frankly it it comes down to mindset and determination those kind of values and, and, and having some ambition and not about the grades on the piece of paper. The, the grades on the piece of paper don't help me at all
1: now. No, and it's, it's, it's quite literally the name of the podcast, Successes in the Mind, is, is essentially what you're alluding to.
0: It's literally in the mind. I mean, not, there's very little more to it. Most of the connections I've had to build for this business have just been me banging my head against walls repeatedly to, to, to get through the door, and I think that's been sort of done. Are you
1: looking for a PR company that can evaluate your brand profile and execute effective communications? Well, and PR, who work with some of the largest brands in the fashion, field sports, and luxury lifestyle sectors, can do exactly that. Developing long-term relationships is at the heart of the Bloxam ethos. Combining big thinking with big results, they simply never miss a trick, and they certainly didn't miss a trick, by partnering with us for Series 2. Check them out at bloxhampr.com. Coming up in next week's podcast, I speak to a Berlin startup, Audrey, and its co-founder Nicholas. An online community revolving around podcast collaboration, Audrey is the biggest podcast collaboration platform in the world to date. Here's what to expect.
0: Not sure about the fun specifically, but definitely prepared me in many ways. They gave me a lot of insights on, I mean, my dad on how banks work. He saw that affili- there were some affiliates at his bank worked with, like credit cards and stuff. They made a ton of money, so he told me I should try that out. They're both very confident people, so they always gave me the confidence to just try it, even if I fail.
1: And what did your, your parents do, siblings, etc? You know, if you went back to when you were a child, what did they do? Were they entrepreneurs? Were they successful? Or were they just average Joe?
0: I, I think my, my family is what I think traditionally people would call working class. And my dad's a, a roofer. His brother's a roofer. I think my mum my uh, was probably the exception to the rule. She didn't go to university, but she worked very hard and ended up getting a, a senior job at a, a sports company called Umbrave And, and I, I was the only... Person in my family to a ever a go to private school and b ever go to university. So I, I, I very much come from a kind of a working class, hardworking background. With the exception, of my mum. So yeah, not not really a posh, privileged upbringing, but sort both sides.
1: No, but it goes a long way. The, the grafting goes a long way. And I suppose a lot of entrepreneurs, if you actually look at their backstory, have some level of something to prove, a chip on their shoulder, something like that. I mean, have you got something that you're wanting to kind of shove two fingers up to society and go, "This is what I'm doing." I mean, have you have you got a chip?
0: I i think we all have have some chips on our shoulder i worked in the hospitality industry around school and uh it was an inner city nightclub in manchester and the way people treat you oh my goodness i mean people used to spit on you you throw chewing at me throw drinks at me i had a chair thrown at my head um hosting night clubs are the best places to see the worst of humanity and i think having done that I think you, you see the not so pleasant side of, of of certain people, and I think that motivates you, right? You you know, I, I I used to clean clean glasses in the glass washroom after I'd been promoted from sweeping the floors. Uh, I think I think I think the quote I'll never forget the quote that the the manager said is so. I, I knew the business was struggling when I was there, and being a a nosy teenager wanted to get involved and, and give some ideas and I think the comment was what does a spotty teenager know about running a business and I thought fair point <laughs> <laughs> not, not that much um but you know I, I ended up helping them do a turnaround of the business through I mean literally I had no expertise at all you just kind of make it up as you go along using common sense and a bit, a bit of initiative and you know it wasn't on there wasn't on the bar for that much longer.
1: But looking looking at kind of when you made that jump from, I suppose, corporate life, and let's call it city life, for instance, into funding and running your own business, why did you decide to take that leap? Because you must have been on a fairly, you know, comfortable package. You could, you know, pay the mortgage. You're massive risk to just throw it all away, right?
0: <laughs> mortgage. What does the word mortgage mean? Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm renting. The, the, the The concept of a mortgage is quite terrifying for me at the moment.
1: Uh, (laughs) Pay the rent then, pay the rent.
0: Pay the rent. Uh, Look, I I think uh, the truly honest answer is uh, there's a lot online about how I had this wonderful idea and decided I was going to change the world. Uh, It was quite simple, really. UBS pays a lot of money. Uh, you'd be surprised to hear being on the training floor pays a lot of money, a lot more than, uh, than I earn now, let's put it that way. I, I actually enjoyed what I was doing now. I-, I loved it. Mm-hmm. I'd go as far as saying that it was invigorating. But my mum my unfortunately was diagnosed with terminal cancer when I was I so was 22. And look, I-, I think for me, that was an eye-opening moment. I'd-, I'd always wanted to do my own thing. I'd always wanted to do something bigger and more meaningful. And obviously being, you know, slightly naive, I thought, well, you know, the best way I could support my family is quit the high flying role and decide to to set up a, a venture. But I just I just came to terms with the fact that life is too short. I need to I need to be doing doing something which I I'm going to look back on in forty fifty years time. If if the stress doesn't get to me earlier, I'd be proud of and say look I did something meaningful. or At least it was meaningful for 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 me. And yeah, I can make my my family proud. I mean, my, my brother was almost 12 years younger than me, so it's, it's like having your own child in a way. I'm 29 now, he's 17, he's still about five years old in my eyes, and I think you kind of find yourself, like, do you, what kind of example do you want to set?
1: Yeah, role model-wise.
0: Yeah, I think you have to. It's, it's, I mean, it almost doesn't feel like a sibling relationship. It almost feels like you're a kind of a, a third parent. And I think, yeah, I, I just wanted to, to to go out there, do something meaningful, fight fight the world, and try and yeah, try and achieve something big. And and I think that's what has got me to this point. Is I, I just have a, an unwillingness to give. up.
1: It's admirable, and I'm sorry to hear about your your, your mother. It's,
0: uh, it's fine. Ironically, terminal cancer. She's still here seven years later.
1: Well, there goes that grit and determination. Maybe that was the kicker. Maybe that's why you're, you're being and doing what you're doing because you're, you're clearly wanting to, to look after your brother and that's hugely admirable. But not only that, you're also on the board for the Prince's Trust. Which Oh, you did your homework. a phenomenal organization. I do a bit of work with them, but you've you've done a lot of other charitable work with Women's Aid and Future Dreams, etc. You are incredibly philanthropic in that sense, but yet you're still trying to start a business and going through the motions of of a startup. How do you split your time and why are you doing that?
0: The, The honest answer is there's not enough hours in the day and I don't get much sleep, so... I'm sure people around the office would say uh, occasionally look like I'm half asleep and I'm ratty sometimes, but uh, I, I like to get involved with charities and, and I, I'll only do it on a meaningful level because there's so much kind of wishy-washy stuff out there nowadays and, and PR. I just do it for, yeah. for fun and because, you know, like I, I, I love doing stuff with, uh, we did something with Future Dreams, we did it, you know, I, I wanted to do something with them because my mum had um, breast cancer. I do stuff with the Princess Trust because again, it's just this kind of, I have this view that, you know, when when children come into the world, they're all sweet and innocent and nice. And, you know, when you see the the bad side of society as an adult, they've usually been conditioned by some means to become that way. They don't start off that way. So, you know, there's some small part I can play, some some relatively small part. In someone's life, a single person's life, to to actually do something meaningful that that's rewarding for for me and hopefully for them as well. And I think it's yes you know, it's, it's lovely uh, and, and an honour to to have a, a board seat at the Princess Trust. I think um, I'm not sure whether I'm qualified compared to some of the fantastic people on there, but. Um, it, it's nice to be to be recognized as someone who can hopefully make some sort of difference on some level for somebody out there.
1: I, I'm sure I'm sure you're overly qualified, but looking at your business, your, your business career and taking the two uh, parts of charity on one side, business on the other in a, from a business point of view, what motivates you? Because I'm assuming it's not going to be the money it's going to be making people's lives better. Better, I'm 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 hoping or assuming based on what you've been alluding to already.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I'll give you an honest answer on this a couple of different things. It's it's not financial motivation because you know, UBS surprisingly pays a lot more money than than being an entrepreneur. I think there's there's a couple of things right. I think there is a sense of self-worth and achievement. What, what motivates me and what excites me is I am a terribly competitive person. And I have to say the word terribly because it's not pleasant for people. And uh, I think there's an element of competitiveness, the thrill, the excitement, the adventure, mm-hmm. not knowing what each day brings. There's, there's the battle. I love uh, a metaphorical fight. That combined with the fact that, you know, obviously to be able to do something which is relevant and meaningful and be able to be proud of that when you're older. Which, look, it, my, my view has always been the people who can really make meaningful change are those at the top. Yeah, supposedly, I put inverted commas, at the top of society, the decision makers who can actually impose change on a meaningful level. But
1: you, I mean, you've been on the Forbes 30 under 30 as well. So you've clearly had recognition for doing great things and for being inspirational. I mean, what does moving forwards look like though, James, over the next couple of years for, for Because the fight, let's call it 5 million that you've raised, how and what are you going to do with that? And what do you know? And how do you know to do the right thing? I suppose do you have people around you, do you go with your guts? What What sort of you know, kicks you into gear in that sense.
0: It's all about growth. Doing what we do on a significantly larger scale has to be technology and data driven. The concept of reselling things for people is not remotely innovative. I think most people on planet Earth have probably sold something for someone at some point. I guess what we're doing is we're, 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 we as a business are selling convenience but also this idea of faster sales and better prices for people who don't have the time or inclination to sell these luxury fashion products themselves. And right. I think this money will allow us to do that on a far larger scale by developing underlying IP to, to do this on a significantly larger scale. So for us, you know, Cadoni has a global presence. You know, we want to take this out to The world stage in a more meaningful way. I mean, the particularly interesting question you ask about how do you know what to do next? I don't think you ever really know what comes next. One of one of my mentors is a a wonderful chap called Anthony, who founded a probably a slightly more well-known business than than mine called Pets at Home. He said to me, and this guy, by the way, he's built a multi-billion-pound company. He said he basically said that you never really know what you're doing, and if he can say that. And I can definitely say that. So one of the cliches is yeah, don't be the smartest. If you're in, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. So I pride myself on consistently being the most stupid person in any room I walk into. And I'm doing a great job. Of
1: that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very good that. <laughs> no, don't shoot yourself down. How do you I mean you 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 know you elude and name drop left, right, and centre, you know, pets at home, etc. Capital one. How do you become so connected with such a diverse range of people across multiple different sectors?
0: I completely ask myself the same question all the time. And actually that's a really, really, really valid question. Why do they bother? Because obviously some of these people are absolutely you know superb achievers and they, they've done everything and I think there's an, an element of luck I don't think these people ever gravitate towards you know uh you know someone someone like myself when I'm, I'm a hustler and I'm kind of running around the streets trying to achieve something especially at the early stages I think I think it's just an element of luck I think it's an element of perseverance and I think it's just association through time the more you kind of get in the mix with people who've achieved these great things they drag you up with them and you're learning from them and if you can try and aspire to be on their level. You hope that people see something of themselves in in you and what you're doing and they can relate to it. And I think that's it. I think once you get past the point of being the irritating guy who wants some advice, um, you know, you end up talking about, you know, investment and other things beyond that.
1: Looking, I suppose, uh, at the pandemic, which is obviously where we are currently, and, and you being an online business, the likes of Amazon—it's, it's, you know, it's common knowledge that they've exploded massively over this period. Have you guys seen a massive uplift, and have your investors been quite pleased that, obviously, being online, you're, you're pretty indestructible in that sense?
0: Yeah, it's—it's it's been an interesting one for Cadoni. Actually, it's probably the right answer for me to say is, oh, it's been fantastic, and it's just really exploded in growth. That. You know, uh, we'll be as big as Amazon within three years. But I think the real answer is um, when, when when lockdown came in, I mean, the first issue you've got is, are we allowed to be open? Are we not allowed to be open? Who can work where? Who can do what? What guidelines do we need to follow? And we take that stuff really, really seriously. And you have to when you're at this site. And that takes a lot of time and energy and money. Yeah, you know, we, we had to find ways to get customers in because they weren't sure whether we were operating. It, w- it was challenging at first, really, really challenging. Uh, operationally, getting customers through the door, et cetera. But we've hit record numbers ever since, and I don't think it's necessarily because we're online. I think that obviously is more defensible than being brick and mortar. If you look at you in the brick and mortar game, you are in big trouble, regardless of how well you, you how agile you are and how well you you can run a business. So I think it, I think we have the tools in place, but I think ultimately we have the people uh, in the team who did an amazing job in actually managing to completely spin my head in a million directions and say look we need to be doing this we should be doing that and I said look I'm trusting you to go and do it because there's a lot of stuff going on and look our numbers have gone on and we have done well but I think a lot of it's down to the hard work of the team I I think luxury as an industry, in, in at least commercial terms, has not found much joy in COVID. And,
1: and your team around you, I'm assuming, you know, be them investors or staff, you know, how have you structured that? And how can you trust in what they say when fundamentally, it's your business, your vision, your livelihood to just go, yep, yeah, okay, that's an idea. We'll run with that idea, that idea we're not going to run with. How do you plan and manage that?
0: Again, I think the honest answer is you have to be, you have to recognise that you don't know everything. You can't be pickheaded, you can't, think you're a know-it-all. Here's the reality, right? I I have some skills and expertise and I'm good at some things, but I'm I'm not an expert marketer. I am not an expert CFO. I'm not an expert chief operating officer. I've done lots of these things. I've got exposure, but there are better people out there who specialize in a function. Ultimately, it comes down to this idea of, of, of hiring quality and look, we've made we made some bad hiring decisions as every business has. And we made some exceptionally good ones. I make hiring decisions on the premise of it's a two-way relationship and not a case of I'm going to pick and choose what I like and, and don't like. It's you tell me. And unless I'm going to really, you know, butt heads, heads with you and conclude this just isn't going to be viable, then then I've I'm paying you and you're you're invested as a shareholder in the business, whether that's an investor or a member of staff. We we're very keen on making sure staff have some level of shares in the business because you want people to care, buy into it and not just be a, not just be a paycheck. I, I'm trusting experts who know about what they're doing and it's their job to tell me the direction that they think their department should be going in. My job is to make sure I get those people, keep those people and piece it together at a strategic level and ultimately, how do I find out whether I'm right or wrong? Well, I try it and I fail and I try it again and I fail. And you'll be surprised to hear, after a lot of trying and failing, um, it doesn't go right most of the time. It's just making sure you minimize the downside of your failures and you continue to push forward and, and you hope your wins are big ones and I think with the team I've got they put a lot of good stuff in front of me so they make my job very easy.
1: When you started did you have to grind a lot yourself in as much as you didn't have this team around you or did you you know start with a team of two or three around you was there a year or two where you were literally doing it all yourself?
0: I actually started off with a co-founder really really great guy called Matt who is exceptionally talented at all things sort of digital product marketing. Being an entrepreneur is you know as your your podcast literally says it is in the mind and and he for all his talents just did not like the idea of going through the treadmill of raising loads of money having to be accountable to customers and staff and investors and it just wasn't the right choice for him based on his personal circumstances and where he wanted to be he then left the business to, to to go and do something else um he's found a lot more joy in being a consultant. And that's not surprising given his talent. Funnily enough, he actually now works in the business again. He is just when it comes to things like Google, he is Mr. Google. Uh and we we had a couple of other people and, and and you know it's the hard part is convincing people to want to work with you when you have no money. Um and frankly, I don't blame them. Uh and looking back now, I I, I don't blame them at all. And I think I think there's assistance and sharing your vision with people and hoping they'll buy into it and and then you build the team, and then it's much much happier place
1: so how do you motivate yourself on a day you get out of bed in the morning and everything's going you know to the fan it's, it's not going well at all and I read online that you get up at five or six in the morning and you might reply to some emails in the evening at eight onwards but how do you actually you know push those barriers down make things happen and actually have a productive day when your mindset is so negative just because of what's going on
0: I think humans are creatures of habit right you get to a point where it's very uncomfortable at first for, for anyone. And then you, over time, you make a conscious decision of, do I want to be the guy who sacrifices a lot in terms of social life and money and all these other things over an extended period, often years for people and sometimes for, forever? Do I want to sacrifice that to try and you know, make it in this game? I had, to, I had to do that. And the reason why I work around the clock is there's just so much to do. And if you're not working incredibly hard, there is someone out there on your level, if not higher, doing exactly the same. So you have to keep pushing yourself. And I think that level of competition, the idea of failure motivated me. The business I started with is now four iterations down the line and it's completely different. And ultimately that's because you're putting in all those hours.
1: You mentioned that you had a mentor, a mentor um, that that sort of you you speak to who looks after you. How important is it to have a shoulder to cry on when you're kind of, in it on your own your co-founder's kind of left yes he's come back because you've employed him but realistically you are the boss and you haven't really got anyone to speak to how important is a mentor
0: uh, essential it's a non it's a non-starter because sometimes you need to speak about personal stuff sometimes you need to speak about literally job related stuff i think i learned the hard way of what the reality of being insular is for for a year i mean i think when my co-founder first left i wasn't really talking to anyone about this stuff and it, it actually it's quite unpleasant but once i've got these mentors in in place it just makes life so much easier because you know that you you can trust someone who actually knows what they're talking about and has far more life and business experience than i so
1: and how do you get the best out of them how do you how do you nurture them as much as they nurture you
0: i go in with the mindset of i've got one mouth and two ears and i will spend my time listening and asking questions and My hope is they find it rewarding being able to share their experiences and seeing how that manifests itself in my world. We talk on a human level as well as a business one and I just be myself. I don't go with any facade or any chats about the Chelsea cafes, (laughs) which you read online. Yeah, well, I
1: mean, that's all I could find online. I was thinking when I was coming into this interview that it was going to be about scones and cream cheese and all that nonsense. But I mean, why do people take that stance with you, James? Do they have a preconceived idea that actually because you're in luxury, you know, fashion to a certain extent online, that actually all you do is drink and eat high tea. I mean, why?
0: Well, firstly, just say it's a scone, not a scone.
1: Is it? Okay. We'll agree to disagree there, sir.
0: No, we have to. I have <laughs> to. I always have to say this. Is right it on, the sir.
1: jam and the cream or the cream and the jam? Uh, I go jam first. You go jam first? No, no, strategically, you put the cream on... And then you put the jam on. No,
0: no, 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 it's all wrong. That's why you call it a scone. It's well, backwards. it is,
1: it is. I mean, it, there <laughs> you go. We, there you go. We have spoken about whatever it is, food confectionery. There we go. But no, in all seriousness, why do people have this preconceived idea, James? With you, in terms of, um, in, in terms of this London socialite image.
0: Yeah, uh, gosh. I mean, a great example is you. You will have read online and people you've read on. We're dealing with these kind of luxury brands like Hermes, LV, Chanel, etc. There is this image of aspiration and lifestyle. And then when you associate aspiration and lifestyle with people, you see celebrities like Millie McIntosh and other people involved with the brand. And you, you'll see a newspaper. There's a there's a caption on one of the photos which says James and Millie are firm friends now Millie was absolutely lovely by the way but we'd only met once and I think the media wants to write about you in a way which which sells which is relevant and which is guess they create they create a self-fulfilling prophecy as to what your story is and I think there's an element of had this kind of normal beginning and then it becomes look how much you know Look how, look how many high tees this guy can, 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 can get in on a weekend. And it's just the brand that I think people kind of fit me alongside it.
1: I would completely agree with that. I mean, you're an incredibly humble guy from what I've, what I've understood and, and sort of discussed with you over the last, whatever it is, 40 minutes to an hour. Now, for you, what does success actually look like? Is it money? Is it wealth? Is it, is it being known for something great? What is it, James?
0: I honestly think success, for me, is achievement. So I, I would I wouldn't deem myself a success if I won the lottery and I wouldn't deem myself a success if I built a successful business and I felt like I hadn't earned it. I think it's the feeling of all those horrible days and all the things that go wrong, which again can't stress enough there is there are a lot of things that go wrong all the time. I think it's coming out on the other side and seeing Looking inwardly at how you're developing and how you're behaving, and, and 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 what you are getting out of the experience, this is why I absolutely love it. I love the adversity. That for me is success. It's being able to go to battle every day and come out on top at the end, and that doesn't have to be ceding IPOs for five billion. And you know, I, it's not about that. Um, it, no. it's it's the sense of winning in the market. I really want to win. That for me is great. That gets me up in the morning.
1: And talk to me about the success for Codoni then, because what does that look like? Is it different to what success for you personally is?
0: I think the two have some alignment. I think success for, for Codoni is providing a shareholder return. <laughs> That's the definition of a private company. So I guess that is ultimately what Codoni as a, as a financial institution wants to achieve in terms of Uh, as an actual business, as an enterprise, it's solving a genuine problem for the busiest of people. And we will succeed when we are the market leader and offer that to as many people as possible. And I think for me personally, it's uh, being able to look at myself in the mirror and say, actually, we've done a really good job for customers. When customers tell you something nice, I mean, it's never me, by the way, they tell something nice. It's always the, the team that actually deserve it and they get good feedback. And I hear that. That, for me, is incredibly rewarding.
1: Brilliant. I mean, if you don't get feedback, James, I shall give you some feedback. You are genuinely one of the most humble people I think we've had on this podcast and, and inspiring. And a lot of the stuff that you've said I think will instill a lot of confidence in a lot of people, both from a shareholder point of view and a sort of future entrepreneur point of view. Well, thank you. That means a lot. But James, if somebody wanted to go to Codone and indeed look you up or indeed the business, where can they go and how can they find it? Well,
0: I'm hoping. The plan is we can get Codoni in front of you wherever you are. So, so if, if, if we don't... I'm looking for you. Uh, where will you find us? I mean, we're largely London-centric. Um, we do cover the entirety of the UK. We distribute globally. I mean, if you Google search us or you Google search our industry, we will usually appear at the top. We're all over social media. You know, we're increasingly being recognised. You know, it's a really proud moment for me. Um, my, my, my One of my probably three LinkedIn posts a year is, is always about something the team have achieved. We've been ranked um, on Harper's Bazaar's list recently for... It'll be one of their top um, global resale sites, and alongside the likes of you know the eBay's and the best collectives of the world, and yeah, that's um, that, that's they're the kind of places you'll, you'll find us. So, uh, and hopefully we'll find you first.
1: Kidoni, we will we will find you first. I like that. That's a great that's a great <laughs> end to the podcast. James, but thank you, th- thanks so much for coming on, and I hope you find some new customers. A
0: pleasure. Me too. Kidoni.com.
1: Kidoni.com. Thanks so much for listening to this week's podcast. If you enjoyed it as much as we did, we would really appreciate it if you could rate it, share it, and subscribe to it. To find out more about the guests featured on Success In The Mind, visit our website, bizpodcast.co.uk. That is with a Z, where you can apply to be on the show, check out the behind-the-scenes content, and keep up to date with what's coming up. Check out our Facebook page by visiting at Success is In The Mind pod, or follow me on Twitter at Oliver Bruce underscore biz. This podcast has been produced by the team at Pinpoint Media. To find out more, visit pinpoint-media.co.uk. Thanks so much for listening. Take care.